Connected by purpose, driven by passion. This is Children's Healthcare Canada's Spark Conversations podcast series. Welcome to Spark Conversations, Children's Healthcare Canada's monthly podcast series. At the crossroads of children's healthcare system improvement and leadership, Spark Conversations is a solution-focused podcast that connects child health community with system leaders who tackle wicked problems and discuss ideas to inform the development of innovative and integrated systems serving children and youth. Spark Conversations is one component of the newly refreshed Spark Knowledge Mobilization Program. Spark is the shared platform for advocacy, research, and knowledge. I'm Paula Robeson, and today I'm delighted to be speaking with Dr. Krishana Sankar. Dr. Sankar is a science advisor and community partnerships lead at Science Up First. She is currently the SciComm lead and program manager for the At COVID-19 Canada. Krishana is also a molecular and cellular biologist who earned her PhD from the University of Toronto. Originally from Guyana, Dr. Sankar is a researcher, science communicator, founder, speaker, and advocate. Beyond research, Krishana loves to communicate her research and science to the general public and children in STEM. She promotes science literacy and advocates for girls and women in STEM. She is also active on social media, where she promotes her love of science and advocacy work. Today, we're chatting about a timely topic, clear communications during the COVID pandemic, Hello, Dr. Sankar. Welcome to Spark Conversations. Hello, Paula. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm delighted to have you here. You're an expert, Dr. Sankar, in science communication and offer a world of knowledge from many different contexts. Before we really dive into the meat of our discussion today, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got where you are now? Sure. Um, So, like you mentioned, You know, I completed my PhD at the University of Toronto in cellular and molecular biology. And actually, during my time as a PhD student, what I realized is I really enjoyed communicating the findings around my research and the research of my colleagues, as well as our senior investigators to the public. I thought it was really important that a lot of the research, especially the research being done at the bench, which we tend to call, um, you know, basic science, was actually communicated to the public. So they're aware of what's happening within university settings, for example. And actually, during that time, I co-founded and was uh, instrumental in starting uh, several different not-for-profit organizations where the main aim was to actually get the scientific knowledge out to the public, but in a very easy to understand way. Um, Typically, scientific uh, information comes out very heavily, it's heavily laden in in jargon. And that's one of the barriers to access of information for a lot of the public. So one way in which to remove this access, uh, or to sorry, to remove this barrier to access, is to ensure that the language is easily understandable to people who read at uh, to everyone, and especially to people who read from a grade six level and up. And so that was one of the ways in which I started to get really involved in science communication through these different initiatives that I started or that I actually worked with. And I found myself uh, continuously engaging in it because I found it not only to be very important, 
but I also found it to be extremely, uh, you know, exciting for me. I love the the idea of just being able to engage with people around and about science. Uh, you're, you're speaking my language. I've, I've been a knowledge broker in the health field since, I don't know, 2004. So science communication is part of what I've come to discover as a clinician and as a for a career path. Speaking to a fellow science communicator is, is uh, delightful, frankly. Um, misinformation and even disinformation are not new concepts. Throughout COVID, we've been hearing the same or similar stories revisited. The COVID discussion has become even more emotionally charged now that vaccines have rolled out for some, but not all, of Canada's children. The skills required for critical consumption of evidence appear lacking in many areas. Headlines are often misleading. People are sharing information without reading or checking for their accuracy. Canadians are having difficult conversations with people they care about around the dinner table or over Zoom or FaceTime. And uncertainty, discomfort, and mistrust are seen throughout our social media communications. Science Up First is a collective of independent scientists, researchers, healthcare experts, and science communicators working to stop the spread of misinformation, specifically about COVID, and was created to cut through a lot of that misinformation with good science, and as you say, shared in a way that others can understand it. Can you tell us more about the work you do to help people in Canada make informed choices about COVID? Yes, definitely. So like you mentioned, Science at First is a collective of experts. So we have experts uh, from all different fields, whether it be health, science, or the social sciences, communication, which of course is also very important. And I think uh, an expertise that is uh, usually undervalued, particularly during this time. And so we have all these different experts working together using social media to stop the spread of misinformation. There's also lots of research and many studies, uh, particularly in the discipline when it comes to tackling misinformation. And we use that science-based approach to debunk a lot of misinformation that we observe through different channels, specifically social media. And most importantly, when we create our content, it has to be scientifically accurate and vetted. So they tend to be vetted by external experts who work with the initiative. And the content, like you mentioned, it has to be engaging. So it has to be simple to understand. It also has to be shareable so that it can reach a lot of people on the different social media platforms, particularly because we are competing with lots of very catchy misinformation out there. So our posts need to be where all the people are at. They have to be catchy as well. Uh, and a lot of people are consuming their information on social media platforms, and that's where our posts go. So, for example, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and also TikTok. And we also communicate and partner with different organizations, both at the local and national levels, particularly different communities where their access to information, whether it be in their language or, or whether it be uh, a simpler language or um, otherwise, uh, they tend to not have access to that information. So we partner with different communities, uh, specifically underserved communities, uh, marginalized communities, BIPOC communities, so racialized communities, uh, where we're able to help to get and disseminate this information out to them. The dissemination information is really quite powerful. And there's a lot that we in science communication can learn about how to market our messages effectively. How can we safely and effectively debunk information without alienating folks? 
Yes, this is an excellent question. And it can be really tricky as well, uh, especially when we are having these conversations with family, friends, or loved ones in general. Uh, these conversations tend to get you know, emotionally charged because we tend to be very emotionally invested um, in these conversations when we're speaking with these particular people. So a couple of things, or actually a few things. Firstly, it's really important to actively listen to what you know, the person you're talking to is saying without judgment. And I know that can be very difficult, but it's a very, very important piece of this entire puzzle is the ability to listen actively to people without judging them. So allowing them to express themselves and their concerns and engaging in compassionate conversation, then sharing your own concerns. So for example, whatever concerns you may have had, particularly during the pandemic, sharing stories with them, trying to find basically a common ground where both of you can meet each other and have some sort of common understanding. And then you start to point them to accurate information, show them what's actually scientifically accurate and what we know. Also, being transparent about what we know versus what we don't know um, is very is very important because we need to build trust. Without trust, we won't even be able to have these conversations. And then from there, you start to point out where the inaccuracies are present. Show them where the misinformation is, you know, how you can help this pretty much helps to guide them through the information that they're seeing. And so therefore, they can take this and go on further uh, next time they see a piece of information and figure out what's accurate and what's not. And then you finish it up by turning them on to, you know, accurate sources of information. So essentially using a bit of a sandwich method where you start by showing them the accurate information, you point out the inaccuracies, and then you finish up with giving them accurate sources of information. Wonderful. Thank you. The vaccine hesitant and the anti-vax seem to be two distinct groups, at least in my mind. What's your advice to addressing the information needs of those two very distinct but not homogenous groups? Yeah, this is another excellent question, a very important one, um, because it's important to know that the people who are currently unvaccinated within this group, they're a heterogeneous group. Not everyone has the same reasons for not being vaccinated yet. You know, some people are hesitant, some are complacent, some are deniers, and some are completely anti-vaccination. And so, again, what I would say, you know, engaging in these conversations, it's important to listen because without listening, we don't actually, we won't actually know where they're coming from, uh, you know, what their angle is. So listening to what they're saying during the conversation is important. You know, you can tell if they have genuine concerns and they're open to actually hearing accurate information with the types of questions that they're asking versus someone who's just there to push an anti-vax narrative and they seem to be opposed to having an open conversation. So at that point, there may be very little you can actually do to help change their minds. Uh, they're usually those who are on the fringes. You know, they tend to buy into uh, conspiracy theories and reaching them may not necessarily be possible. So as someone who chats with people in you know, these various groups, I would say it's really important that those who are actually doing this work protect their energy as well. Because uh, when doing this type of work, determining who is worth continuing a conversation with and who isn't is really important. You just also need to know when to walk away from an unproductive conversation because it just is not going, you know, in a right or a positive direction. And do you have cues that you look for or anything to help folks who are a little bit hesitant um, among the healthcare providers who might be hesitant to address the needs of the uh, unvaxxed 
across that whole spectrum from just hesitant through to complete anti-vax? Yeah, so typically, um, if there is someone who is hesitant, uh, you know, they tend to be a little bit more open to conversation, they will, you know, ask different questions. um, But whenever you give answers, they tend to have more of an open mind um, to receiving this type of information versus someone who is strictly anti-vaccine, what you'll get is they tend to do something we call moving the goalpost. So if they ask one question and you give an answer, they will continuously have questions that will uh, start to address different concerns. So instead of trying to, you know, be able to have this over open conversation about one question at a time, they would just constantly rebut every answer you give them with a different question that's actually irrelevant to the first question. And that's when you can start to tell that, you know, perhaps they're they're not necessarily open to, to listening and hearing what you have to say. And at that point in time, you know, it's it's probably best to walk away having known that you have tried your best and done your best to give them and point them in the direction of accurate information. But at the end of the day, we cannot, you know, we cannot and we will not be able to change the minds of everyone. Fair. How can we help non-scientists, just regular folks, parents, young people, uh, better communicate the information more accurately and effectively? Yeah, this is also, again, another really good question. And I would say this comes back to the previous question you asked, uh, basically on the methods we use to debunk misinformation. So, And what I'll say here, too, is non-scientists and non-medical experts play a huge role in helping to counter misinformation. Uh, They tend to have a major influence on the people in their lives, uh, especially loved ones. So we do know that family and friends and community leaders tend to have more influence sometimes over their loved ones than, say, experts or other officials. So you have a lot of power um, and uh, ability to help in these conversations. And again, it comes back to using compassion and empathy during the conversations, uh, sharing the common concerns and the stories, you know, finding common ground. It really helps to open up the conversations. And then, of course, you go back to sharing the accurate information. And I mean, not everyone is able necessarily to do this, but if you are able to point out where the inaccuracies are and why, you know, for example, in a piece of uh, controversial material or perhaps a piece of misinformation, you're able to point uh, those out and why they were put there, um, you know, share that as well. And then at the end, just share the accurate resources again. You mentioned empathy in science communication. Tell me a bit about why that's so important and what do we need to know about how to do it well? Yes, empathy, I've probably mentioned a few times already. Um, you know, we, we know it's the ability to be in someone else's shoes, for example, right? And, and it's usually something that is very challenging to do. We tend to be more empathetic when we've actually experienced a similar situation to the other person that we're speaking with. So, you know, practicing compassionate conversation is really important because it helps to build that muscle of empathy. It's not something that comes easily. Um, Having a shared experience, talking about it, and then realizing how you feel when someone else speaks from, you know, a similar point of view is a really good place to start from. But of course, knowing that we can't all possibly, you know, know how every person feels in every situation. And that's why it's important to 
be patient, practice active listening, practice, you know, being non-judgmental and ask questions and be engaging. So ask questions, uh, ask people questions about their experiences. It usually even in these conversations, uh, people tend to express and reveal the things that really worry them. And it helps to bring that human side to the conversation. Um, I think also it's important for us to realize sometimes that we might need to take a step back when we know we can't practice, you know, a compassionate conversation and to reset and reassess the situation. Because once that is lost in a conversation, usually in these very, you know, emotionally charged topics, things can go uh, array. So it's really important to ensure that you're in a good place to begin with and that you're practicing all those different tools before you engage with people, uh, particularly with these tough conversations. Yeah, caring for yourself and knowing yourself as you enter into them. Exactly. Often we see people or organizations, particularly on social media, are caught in their own, what I'll call an echo chamber, uh, meaning they're continuously supported by biases that may be similar to their own. So they're not even challenged within those circles to think differently. It can be difficult to break out, break out of that echo chamber and, and reach audiences outside of our typical audience. Do you have any advice on how we reach new audiences of people, particularly those that we really are missing or not reaching currently? Yeah, uh, again, I, I think I keep saying this, but another excellent question. It definitely is. It's definitely important to explore other spaces where we currently um, are not present and that we don't currently occupy. Um, you know, trying to engage organizations that are also in our communities uh, that may not necessarily have the same focus we have or our organizations have, but are interested in, you know, transparent and accurate information is a really good place to start. Um, I also think, you know, for example, also, these are things that Science Up First does too, is, you know, engage influencers. And these are people who are part of different groups, for example, parent groups, you know, support groups, sport groups, um, different groups like that. Uh, a lot of people are present in those spaces that may not necessarily have access uh, to the information they need access to. Um, a lot of misinformation is, all, of course, also spread in a lot of these types of groups. So it's really important to be able to get out of our echo chambers and, and get there. Um, and try different social media platforms. So for example, uh, knowing which social media platform has what demographics can be very, you know, it's very important. Um, it's obviously a great strategy to know wh which type of information should live where and who's getting which type of information. So for example, Twitter is where all the experts live. Uh, that tends to be an echo chamber for experts. Um, but, you know, knowing places like Facebook, for example, is where a lot of like the parent groups and the sport groups are present, having an account on Facebook and, and being able to reach out to these different groups, once again, having open conversation, being non-judgmental, um, you know, is another way to do that. Uh, community groups, really important as well. So, of course, not everyone is, you know, lives on social media or has access to social media. So we need to also be able to have access to other groups and communities that are not on social media. A lot of uh, racialized community groups, as well as under, uh, you know, all types of underserved community groups, um, is another good place that we need to start engaging even more to ensure that they can get the information. Uh, we we have known that um, a lot of hesitancy or low vaccine confidence we've seen within these groups is not 
simply because uh, people, you know, don't have the information, but they don't have access to the accurate information. Uh, they don't have access to information within their languages. Um, and they don't have access to a lot of things. So they're just barriers to access for them. Now, being able to offer them this type of information, partner with them and have conversations with them is what is really important to actually getting information to them. Makes a great deal of sense. Has Science Up First targeted specific groups primarily, or is it based on um, who comes forward to want to partner or who you've identified through your own sort of horizon scanning? Yeah, that's a great question. So we've actually actively gone out to see which groups are interested in, you know, being able to partner, um, also, you know, being interested in what we're doing, but also to ensure that they can do it themselves and do so in a culturally relevant way. So a few examples, uh, you know, we've um, approached different racialized groups, for example, or different underserved groups. So we are doing some work with Idea STEM, which is a group that actually serves uh, the disabled community. We're doing some work with Lotus STEM, which is a South Asian network um, of women or others in STEM. And we are, we are partnering with different groups within the Black as well as Indigenous communities. One of the projects that we have going on right now that we will be expanding to different groups is where we have our content. We have a liaison between our group and that community group. And they go through our posts and select the most appropriate ones uh, for their own community. So this one in particular for the South Asian community. And they translate our posts into languages specific for their communities. They also make it culturally rele relevant. I think that's an, another aspect that's missing uh, from content that's currently present. Uh, we may have it in English, which is great, and that community may understand English, but what is culturally relevant to one community may not be culturally relevant to another. And so by modifying that content, it makes it more accessible to that community. Yes, yeah, not, not just uh, linguistic translation, but cultural translation as well. Exactly. What role do organizations like Children's Healthcare Canada have in effective science communication? So Children's Healthcare Canada, just like, uh, you know, many other organizations have a huge, huge role in effective science communication, um, as you would all know. And it's really important that the information that comes out of you know, every organization that has a focus on ensuring that accurate science information gets to their audience, um, you know, they put that front and center, you know, they're, they're ensuring that they are where the people are, they are where their audience is, they're practicing, you know, simple, engaging um, posts and content. Um, it's really, really important, because without it, uh, a lot of people are left to their own devices. And unfortunately, we have so much misinformation that's floating around, especially on social media and online, that without the intervention of organizations like Children's Healthcare Canada or Science Up First, more and more people are consuming this mis misinformation. And we know that misinformation has uh, you know, really detrimental effects on public health and on the public at large. So it's really important for all these, you know, different organizations to continue doing the good work they do, particularly in science communication. Thank you. Uh, we're through the main portion of our interview. And at this point, I'd like to introduce 
sort of a new part that we're starting in our podcasts, what we're calling rapid fire questions. And there's a few here for you that I'd like you to answer in, in a, like first thing that comes to you, uh, no right or wrong answers. Um, are you ready to get started? There's just three. Okay, sure. Who has had the biggest influence on your career and why? Oh, <laughs> uh, I guess I'll have to say my mom. Uh, <laughs> my mom, because she has always been someone who has been very uh, supportive and encouraging of me continuously reaching the different heights that I have reached, but to continue pressing on. So I would say my mom for that reason. Oh, thanks, mom. <laughs> um, what's one thing you feel really deeply grateful for right now? Uh, right now, I'm... So this may sound cheesy and obvious, but I'm honestly deeply grateful for science and medicine. Um, I mean, it is obvious just because of the place we're in in the pandemic. But, you know, without, you know, the interventions that we've had, particularly vaccines uh, within the last you know year and a bit, we would have a whole lot more deaths than we've seen from COVID-19. And a lot of I'm particular, of course, all of us, you know, but particularly when it comes to my family and, you know, my grandma, I'm just happy that she is protected. Um, and she's doing, you know, they're all doing well so far, knock on wood. <laughs> but, you know, um, I'm, I'm just really gra- grateful for that. Uh, yeah, it, it's more, be- it's beyond just our own little piece of the world. It, it extends to our grandmas and our moms and our siblings, etc. Exactly. What's the number one thing we need to consider right now to move child health care forward in a positive direction? Ooh, that's a hard one. Um, I think here, and so I will link this back to COVID. I mean, that's you know where the conversation is right now. Um, I think having transparent conversations, but again, practicing empathy and kindness in these conversations is extremely important. And I say this because... Uh, you know, it, you just have to take a look on social media to see where the conversations are going. Uh, the moment, you know, kids and vac- the topic of kids and vaccines comes up, uh, it gets, you know, again, it gets very emotionally charged and understand- understandably so, uh, because kids are involved. But I would just like people to, you know, take a second, take a breath, um, and realize we all are, we all want the same thing. We all want the protection of, you know, kids. Um, we all want the same thing. How we get there, we may have different ideas, but uh, just being kind in our communication with each other will get us there faster and with less challenges. Yeah, I, I'm a member of the More Bees with Honey Society as well. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, that was so much fun, Krishana. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. That was amazing. It's a pleasure speaking with you. To stay up to date on all of our Spark offerings, including upcoming podcast episodes, visit our website at childrenshealthcarecanada.ca and subscribe to our Spark newsletter if you haven't already done so. Thanks for listening to Spark Conversations. And before we go, show some love for your new podcast series by leaving us a review and join us again next month. Thank you. Thank you.